Hi, welcome to episode 29 of Talk About the Passion, The Power to Believe. The title of this episode comes from the title of a King Crimson record from 2003. It's a great record, and the title, as well as the song title Happy With What You Have to Be Happy With, are both uh, interchangeable for this one. To be completely honest, the only reason I didn't name it Happy With What You Have to Be Happy With is because it wouldn't fit on the little uh, JPEG ad thing I make to promote each episode. Uh, but you can you can use both of these titles. I think they work for uh, the conversation. Uh, my guest today is Coleman Rogers. Coleman is a photographer from Massachusetts. If you're tapped into the Boston music scene right now, you'll probably see a lot of his photographs. Uh, he's shooting constantly. Uh, I had the pleasure of meeting him briefly at the Jerry's Kids final show a couple of months back. Uh, we talk a bit about that show in this episode, actually. As you'll hear in the episode, though, Coleman is more than a photographer. He talks about growing up around Detroit and as well as uh, his years working in recording studios, all the while, you know, being this innovative and, and driven guy that, you know, he just talks with, with great passion about the recording process and his, his life in that world. It, it's, it's pretty cool. Uh, we get into a little bit uh, about an uh, accident Coleman got into on his uh, bicycle that almost killed him. And, uh, you know, this, this is a great episode, and it was my first conversation I had with someone after taking a few months off to sort of regroup. Uh, Coleman invited me up to his place where we recorded this, and then we headed over to this uh, excellent place uh, called Uncharted, which is a great little spot in Lowell that has a lot of uh, great shows, local bands, as well as some uh, bigger shows. I think I saw Evan Dando is playing there soon, if you're into that. Uh, Coleman was a great guest, and I was happy to hang out with him. Uh, he, you know, exudes passion, as I just said, and you'll you'll hear in this long conversation. Uh, a couple more things, and we'll get going here. I'm on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Instagram and Facebook are, are probably my favorite places to post, and I try to keep both of them uh, pretty current with content, even between new episodes. Uh, a lot of times I try to put... Uh, if there's any visual stuff that, that goes along with the conversation, like maybe uh, photographs from a, a certain show or, or that kind of thing, I may put them up randomly here and there or attached to the uh, actual show. Uh, same goes with where you can hear the podcast. I'm uh, on iTunes, Google Play, uh, even Spotify now. Uh, if you'd like to be on an episode or know someone who should... Or have an idea for an episode that's, you know, not one of these straightforward sort of biographical conversations. Uh, let's talk. Send me a message at, you know, one of those social media sites and we'll get something happening. Uh, anyway, I'll stop talking. Here is episode 29, The Power to Believe. Thanks for listening. Uh, I'm here with Coleman Rogers, and uh, how, how are you doing today? I'm doing okay. Uh, you know, we were we were talking before this, and I the the little recorder you have, I saw red lights on it <laughs> when I was a recording engineer. Um, I I uh, I had the AIR theory, which is always in record. Oh, okay. So yeah. if if I could record, yeah, I always had tape oh, rolling right. yeah, just yeah. to catch moments. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when I saw the we were having conversation yeah. before this, I I was yeah. That is something we were, I was thinking of doing. <laughs> like sort of, and then because some podcasts I've heard where they they kind of fade in a conversation. Sure. So, but yep. yeah. 
but I'm doing fine. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's been a good day. <laughs> yeah, good. Uh, thanks for thanks for doing this for me. Uh, like I said, this is the first one I've done in uh, a few months, so I, I definitely appreciate it. And uh, yeah. oh, you're welcome. I'm, I'm uh, I was thrilled to be you know that you asked me and yeah. and uh, and happy to happy to be doing it with you. Cool. So uh, where where did you grow up, uh, Coleman? Uh, I grew up just outside of Detroit in a suburb called Gross Point. Mm-hmm. Um, most people probably know it from the movie Gross Point Blank, yeah. you know, just the <laughs> yep. name anyway. Right. Um, and uh, starting in sixth grade, I, I uh, was in a, a like a private school, mm-hmm. uh, very small classes, and um, uh, finished there in 1979, graduated from high school, mm-hmm. and, um, and left. Yeah. <laughs> What uh, what what kind of town was uh, Gross Point? Oh, you know, it's it's a, a wealthy suburb. Yeah, okay. um, a lot of the um, car executives lived there. You know, right. Um, right on the water, we had things like the Henry Ford Mansion. Oh wow! You know, there were there were some huge estates right on right on Lake St. Clair, right. along Lakeshore Drive there. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, like any other place, it's uh, it has boring things and right. some interesting things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was, I was happy to be, uh, at this school because it, it, uh, it was, it was, uh, good intellectually. Um, but there were also, um, like I took a mechanics course. Mm-hmm. So I, I took a car engine apart and put it yeah. back together. It was oh, supposed nice. to be a year long course. Right. Um, uh, I had the engine back together again and running it by Thanksgiving oh, nice. and the you know instructor. So that was one of the first things for me of wow you can actually I know what to do with my hands. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I have a good feel for how things work mechanically. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was also a, a good opportunity there for our creativity, uh, especially in high school. There was a theater program, mm-hmm. and um, the director of the theater program really got the school to invest a lot in. Uh, in the theater itself and the program. And so we put on some great, great plays. I was part of, uh, uh, musicals three years in a row. Oh, wow. Um, when I was a sophomore, I was in guys and dolls. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see, uh, junior, I think it was year was a uh, Godspell. Mm-hmm. And then senior year was a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Oh, nice. And so, you know, I had small parts, Yeah, yeah. but, uh, but I, you know, I sang right back then. I, I actually, I was pretty okay musically. Yeah. Um, but uh, it was nice to have that kind of creativity nurturing, right. yeah. in, in a way. And, and how did you? How did you? Is that where you sort of got into that through school, or was there your family into musicals or that kind of? Uh, thing? My grandmother uh, was a, a singer. She sang opera um, for quite a few years um, until she really started having kids and then she gave it up. But it was always something that was, uh, known kind of in our family that, uh, uh, that she sang. Um, and my uncle played violin. My, uh, one of my aunts, uh, sang semi-professionally out in Colorado. Um, and my mom and dad both enjoyed singing in, you know, in local choruses and things like that. Um, so, you know, I, I, uh, I tried playing guitar. I didn't have the, back then, I didn't have the mentality to really sit and practice. Right. And, you know, I was way too scattered to, to ever sit and yeah. you know, concentrate on anything like right. that for long <laughs> enough. You know, if it didn't come easily to me, forget it. I yeah. wasn't about to do it. Yeah. Uh, as much as, as fun as it looked and, yeah. um, you know, as much as I kind of thought maybe that'd be really cool, I just yeah. never did it. Right. Who were uh, some of your first uh, musical 
people you got into as a, as a child? I'd say uh, Elton John was probably one of the first people that I uh, really latched onto musically and, and bought a lot of records right. and listened to them over and over again. Yeah. Um, you know, the production, the, his songwriting, his singing, oh, yeah. you know, everything, the whole the whole drama of his shows. Mm-hmm. That was the first concert I saw with oh, okay. uh, Elton John, probably in like 1976 or oh, 1977. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, back, you know, and they were amazing, amazing yeah. shows. That would have been like Captain Fantastic era, maybe. I think so, Yellow yeah. Day. I mean, I just remember him coming out every two or three songs with a different, <laughs> a different outfit like ridiculous set of glasses and, yeah. and outfit and you know different pianos with all right. the decorations in the pianos it was yeah. it was a pretty intense you know kind of show nice um uh so that he was probably the first one that i really latched onto in a big way yeah. that i that i you know remember now i mean there were a lot of other rock bands you know Led zeppelin aerosmith yeah. the, you know the the big who mm-hmm. the, right. the classic yeah, ones that I really enjoyed, but right. um, but I'd say Elton John was the first one I kind of came preoccupied with. Yeah, yeah, you know, sang all his songs along and right. knew all the lyrics and right. everything. And uh, then photography. When did that come into your life? I think when I was about fourteen or fifteen, uh, I visited a cousin's family out in um, Colorado, and uh, one of my older cousins uh, was into photography and had a dark room. And I was really fascinated by the idea, not just of uh, the images and capturing things, but the uh, process of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the mechanism of the camera, right. and and then the you know you mix up these chemicals, and yeah. suddenly you have this thing that appears. <laughs> right. So you're really covering a wide range of interesting yeah. things there with just doing one thing. Right. Um, so I came back from a vacation uh, and. Um, had a long talk with my dad, I remember, and uh, and he gave me uh, Zeiss Icoflex, which is a twin lens reflex camera that right. he had bought in um, in 1950 on you know, my mom and dad's honeymoon yeah. in France. And uh, we slowly put together a dark room for me in the house. Oh, so nice. I had a section, you know, a little room in the basement where oh, wow. uh, I didn't have running water in that room, um, but I, I could... Uh, you know, I could set up some trays right. and I could develop film and do some printing mm-hmm. um, of my own. Uh, I was part of the yearbook for the you know junior and senior year. Right. Uh, so I took a lot of photos, more of uh, people around school and things like that. Um, I didn't really think of myself as uh, as an artist, right. you know, at that point, mm-hmm. um, but really fascinated with the process. Yeah, and, and and you just showed me that that actual camera. Do you have? Uh photos still from that era of your life or negatives um <laughs> no. no my mom and dad I'm, I'm sure it was my mom yeah i love her to pieces she's 90 mm-hmm. i went off to college and then uh i went to brown university mm-hmm. came home I, I took five years to get through school yeah uh came home i was home for the summer uh after school, trying to find a job in Detroit in yeah. uh, recording studios didn't go well. Right. Um, and in the fall of 1984, I, I don't mean to jump ahead. It's part yeah, of the story. No, no, no. In the fall of 84, I got a call from a friend here in Boston mm-hmm. who offered me a job here in a little recording studio yeah. in, uh, in Brighton. Okay. And uh, I packed up and moved out. Nice. And I don't remember taking all my darkroom stuff with me. 
and years later, I remembered uh, that I had it. I didn't really do photography through college very much. Um, and I have no idea what happened all my books of negatives. <laughs> yeah. oh, and I have a feeling good. my mom probably yeah. said, this is all bullshit and threw it away. Yeah. So it's really sad. I don't. I do have... Um, I actually do have some prints. Um, one of the uh, one of the things I really enjoyed doing was uh, photographing um, dress rehearsals for the the theater. Okay. And uh, I guess that's where I get my uh, my love for shooting, you know, <laughs> live music in right. a dark environment yeah, up yeah. on a stage. Because um, yeah. you know, every every play, I was the one in charge of oh, shooting wow. photos of the play. Nice. And so I think I have uh, somewhere in a box around here. I've got prints, eight by ten prints of. Um, Probably more outtakes than anything, right? You know, people being wacky on the stage. Yeah, yeah. Of, uh, uh, but I don't have the negatives. I yeah. wish I did. I yeah, just yeah. I can't find them anywhere. Nice. So, and uh, so is that, is that how you made your way to Massachusetts? From uh, yes, exactly. Getting, I went yeah. to school in Providence. Yeah. Um, and uh, while I was in school at Providence, um, you know, I went to school to uh, to study uh, mechanical engineering. Okay. Um, I really had a love for. Um, alternative energy. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I went to school, Jimmy Carter was still president and he was really making a big push for uh, investing in alternative energy, solar power, you know, Mm -hmm. thermal, all the, basically everything. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so, you know, I struggled with some of the engineering classes, but, but I was moving my way through and really getting excited. Uh, You know, it, it, it all makes sense. uh, If you look at my whole uh, career arc, um, one of the professors who was my advisor um, had a lot of lab experiments he was doing. Mm-hmm. And so even though I didn't do great in his classes, I worked with him in the lab right. and was kind of like a student assistant to his grad students. Okay. And so I remember going and being in meetings with the grad students and him, and they were talking about theories and they mm-hmm. were developing these long equations on the board. Yeah. And I, it, I was really... Um, felt much more comfortable with my hands-on and the lab equipment itself. Right. Yeah. Um, so uh, I would say junior year, uh, we started doing career counseling stuff and looking at where I would might get placed. Right. And I started talking about, uh, you know, wanting to go into alternative energy. And at that point, Reagan had been uh, president probably for two years. Mm-hmm. And it only took him a little while to pretty much pull the plug on everything Jimmy stuff. Carter had done yeah. and uh, was ramping up all the defense right. and starting to, you know, getting going with uh, with Cold. essentially the, ra- the war yeah. race, the arms race with uh, with Russia yeah, yeah. and the Soviet Union at that point. Um, so all the career advice I was getting was, well, you're going to end up in uh, working on defense. Right. And so. I kind of had some panic attacks about that, right, yeah. not wanting to do that. Yeah, of course. And so uh, I took a step back and uh, started taking um, some classes in more creative things. Like mm-hmm. uh, I took semiotics mm-hmm. and I took uh, electronic music. Oh, wow. Um, we had a great electronic music program at Brown University. Mm-hmm. And uh, I felt very at home in the recording studio and with the synthesizers and yeah. the machines there. You know, I... I uh, Went to went to college. I had um, a little Tascam four track cassette deck. It was yeah. a one twenty two, you know, Tascam mm-hmm. Porta Studio. Yeah, it was a you know huge thing yeah. at that yeah. point. Oh, yeah. um, and I had a, uh, I still have it actually, the Sequential Circuits Pro One. Oh yeah, it was like the Sequential Circuits knockoff of a right, Moog. right, right. And uh, you know, I I 
tried to sing in bands and stuff and I just, I didn't have the confidence uh, really to, to do it. Um, uh, but I did mess around with that and, and, uh, you know, I played with bands and yeah. did, started actually doing sound in college a little bit for a couple of bands. Mm -hmm. And, um, it really resonated with me working on electronic music and yeah. being in a recording studio. Mm -hmm. Um, my, uh, would have been my fifth year, um, my second senior year, I was one of the student uh, advisors in the recording studio. So mm -hmm. we had somebody from a local recording studio who was a tech yeah. and he would come in once a week and we would, you know, go over all the equipment. Yeah. And so I was with him pretty much all the time when nice. he would come in huh. and learned, you know, some ideas about wiring and, yeah. you know, equipment maintenance, taking things apart and what yeah. you're going to look at. That kind of stuff. Um, so at graduation, you know, I thought, hey, I'm just going to go home to Detroit, yeah. Motown. I'm I'm going to get a job in a recording <laughs> studio. It's going to be great. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, I went around the city and knocked on doors and and got looks like, what are you doing here? <laughs> you know, right. I had no experience. Yeah. You know, in an actual right. recording studio, all I yeah. had was experience as a student. Yeah. And um, so I ended up uh, uh, starting. Um, training for computer sales. Okay. And this is in 1984 when yeah. uh, computers were not easy to work with. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. um, the band I was in at Brown, we were called The Motion. Okay. And uh, we had recorded with one of uh, somebody who was a year or two ahead of us at Brown who had come here to Boston. Yeah. Uh, we had done some recordings with him here in Boston at a little studio called Splice of Life. Okay. Uh, in, in the basement of a house in, in Brighton, yeah. near St. Elizabeth's Hospital. Oh, wow. Some people might remember the name. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I had called him, you know, t as things weren't going well in Detroit, I right. reached out to Dave Zuckerman and said, so, you know, any work out there you know i'd love to come out <laughs> right anything going on and he said well not at this time and it was probably in the middle of august of uh, 1984 he called and said that his studio manager was leaving mm -hmm. and he was looking for somebody to come take her place yeah and would i be interested in moving yeah so i packed up all my stuff from detroit and and came here to boston oh, wow. and um i was uh managing the studio schedule and i uh handled cassette duplication yeah which, you know, remember cassette duplication? <laughs> oh, yeah. We had... Uh, High-speed dubbing? No. No. We, we had really? uh, Nakamichi um, BX1s. Crap, I forget the uh, I forget the model number of the of the cassette deck, but they were all matched cassette yeah, decks. Right. And we had an Otari half-track, you know, reel-to-reel -reel that we would play masters from. And, uh, you know, we did, I think, eight, six or eight cassettes all at once. Oh, wow. Uh, one of my first technical projects working there was um, I built a, uh, a remote control that tied all of the cassette decks together huh. so that I had one button, button to, to hit push, yeah. to start them all instead of as quick as I could <laughs> hitting all the play buttons, <laughs> right, right. So you, you know, and then hitting the reel to reel, I could start all of them at once nice. at the same time. That sounds um, so, th you know, that was like my first step into, uh, into the world of recording studios. Yeah. Um, I lived in the house upstairs from the studio. Oh, wow. And so I was pretty much assisting any sessions I could to yeah. learn, you know, what was going on. What, what uh, kind of music was, was coming in and out of there? It was a real mix of things. Um, we did a lot of uh, uh, singer-songwriter folk music. Mm -hmm. um, we did, uh, you know, rock and roll. Yeah. 
And we did, uh, we had some blues, you know, yeah. we had some outside engineers who came in, mm-hmm. uh, Richard Mendelson, who teaches at uh, Berkeley, I think still, yeah. um, he came in, you know, he brought Ronnie Earl's band in oh, wow. back then. Nice. And, uh, those were some amazing sessions. Those guys yeah. could play. Yeah. They would, uh, we had a Leslie there, so they didn't have to oh, bring wow. the Leslie in. Yeah. Um, but those guys would come in and, you know, book out like a week. Yeah. And the music coming out of that was just, it was just unbelievable yeah. here and the stuff they, they played. Nice. Um, you know, so for me as like a 23, 24-year-old kid, oh, yeah. uh, assisting in a little studio was, and hearing those guys was just amazing. Yeah, nice. Um, one of the first sessions I did on my own as an engineer, uh, I worked with uh, Eric Kilburn. Mm-hmm. And uh, Eric is known around town now as being the owner of Wellspring Sound out right. in uh, Acton. Okay. Um, but he uh, he and I are really good friends. Yeah. Uh, you know, he was my first session. Mm-hmm. And um, as uh, he started buying equipment and setting up his own little recording studio, mm-hmm. I would go over and, and set things up with him and then do right. some recordings when he was playing. Yeah. You know, I was basically his engineer at his right. place when he was playing. Um, and so that kind of started me reaching out a little bit from only working and being staff at that right. one place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd say maybe a year or two after I came to Boston, uh, Splice of Life got sold. Mm-hmm. And uh, the woman who bought it, um, she wanted to completely out, re-outfit the studio with equipment. Right. And um, so we we uh, brought in one or two people to consult and uh, talk. I learned how to do wireless. I learned, uh, I kind of knew how to do some soldering and connectorizing right. and things. Uh, you know, when you're managing a studio, you got to learn how to fix headphones really yeah. fast <laughs> because headphones break right. all the time. Yeah, yeah. You know, so... Um, it was really my first uh, diving into uh, how to solve ground loops, mm-hmm. uh, how to interface. And, and in 1984 and five, it was kind of the beginning of um, prosumer equipment mm-hmm. where you had some equipment that operated at uh, plus four operating level, mm-hmm. uh, but was unbalanced, okay, electrically unbalanced. Right, right. Uh, or and some of it was uh, minus ten unbalanced mm-hmm. and had RCAs, but it was being sold as professional. So right. trying to interface these yeah. things was really a challenge, mm-hmm. um, and get everything quiet. Right. Um, but it's really where I got my feet wet in uh, in sitting at, at a desk with a crimp tool in my hand and yeah. a soldering station. Right. And you know my first addiction to uh, to solder flux. Wow. <laughs> you know. Um, and really just spending days and days soldering connectors and shrink tubing and labeling and yeah. and then you know slowly plugging the whole thing together and troubleshooting it yeah. and making it all work having to improvise sometimes and it... yeah you do <clears throat> you know um, because the manual will say one thing but it doesn't work quite right and then you've got some possibilities to try and right you know <laughs> you you stop when it's quiet right. <laughs> you right. know so um uh you know, I was at Splice of Life, I think it was about three years. Um, and then I made contact with uh, uh, Paul Caruso. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Paul was, uh, he was on the South Shore down in Rockland. Okay. Uh, he played drums in the Atlantics for a long time. Yeah. Um, he's since passed away, unfortunately. It's, mm-hmm. you know, too soon. I, right. He was a wonderful, wonderful guy. Yep. Um, but he had a, 
uh, at that point it was a 16 track studio in his house in Rockland. Mm -hmm. Um, it was zoned properly. I mean, it was kind of like right on the water. Right. Um, and somehow, I don't know how the zoning worked, but it was really like the whole basement of his house. Oh, wow. Um, it was a separate door going down right to the water. Oh, wow. Um, he had uh, Mike Blackmer come in. I don't know if you know the name Mike Blackmer. No. Um, Michael is uh, someone who's been a, a recording studio tech and studio designer around this area for probably 40 years, 45, oh, wow. 50 years. I okay. mean, he was uh, the car's oh, main wow. tech at Synchro Sound yeah. uh, for, for a long, long time. Um, he is, uh, he's the son of Dave Blackmer of DBX fame. Right. Um, so he grew up, you know, in around that, that stuff. Uh, so I, I met him, uh, when I started working there because, uh, Paul wanted to turn over the 16 track studio to be a 24 track studio. Right. And he worked a deal with the guys who had, uh, bought synchro sound mm -hmm. to buy the console and tape machine. It was oh, an wow. MCI 636 automated console mm -hmm. and, uh, um, a JH 24, two inch tape machine. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so, you know, I, I got another round of schooling working with Mike Blackmer, yeah. um, in, uh, rewiring the whole studio, making it work. And then, uh, you know, the idea of like popping modules out, sticking, sticking them in an extender right. and doing some troubleshooting and poking around. Nice. And then MC, I needed a lot of love and care. Yeah. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the joke, about MCI is that it stands for munchy, crunchy, and intermittent. <laughs> um, and so you had to really learn how to use that console yeah. on a day-to-day -day basis because right. it, uh, it needed a lot of, a lot of care. And... You, you kind of had to, uh, handle it, um, with gentle force. Yeah. You know, anytime I would, I would need to throw a switch, yeah. I would throw the switch five and six times oh, because wow. you had to kind of exercise the switch yeah. to clear the oxide off the switch. So right. it would be quiet. Yeah. You know, um, so I was at, uh, I was kind of the staff engineer there for, I don't know, two or three years. Mm -hmm. And, um, a lot of the clients that I had at Splice of Life and that I had worked with, uh, um, even doing live sound and, and, uh, and met various places, uh, all said they would come down and work with me at, at Bay Farm. Right. It was what it was called, Bay Farm Sound yeah. Studio. Okay. And very few did. Yeah. Um, and, uh. I worked long days and it was a long drive to get down there. Yeah. Um, so and I even forget who started me doing it, but uh, somebody said, you know, we'd love to work with you, but we don't want to come down there. Is there anything we could do at a different studio? Right. And I think by, by uh, two or three years into me being at Bay Farm, somebody else had bought Splice of Life. Right. And uh, moved it to a, a studio kind of behind the Arsenal Mall in Watertown. Mm -hmm. And um, so I did some freelance work there. And um, probably around that time, I had started buying my own microphones mm -hmm. and mic preamps as, as things would, uh, would show up and seem like an interesting deal. Right. Um, so I bought... Uh, I still have them around somewhere. A friend of mine's been using a lot of this, a lot of my recording here. I've got some beautiful Neumanns, mm -hmm. um, some Neve, and, oh, wow. and Telefunk and V72s are real sweeties. Yeah. I bought those, but no one really knew what they were. Right. Um, and they're really wonderful. So I, I had some of my own recording equipment. 
and I started doing more freelance work, I could go into pretty much any studio mm -hmm. with my own mics and mic preamps right. and suddenly turn their studio into a great recording environment yeah. because I had such great front end stuff. Mm -hmm. So I would go microphone, <clears throat> And I even had my own snakes that I built. I would, oh, wow. it, made of canary, you know, beautiful canary starquad. I would run them underneath the doors oh, and up nice. to my mic pre's, and then I would jack around and go directly into the tape machine. Oh, wow. And so pretty much the whole front end was all my front end. Oh, wow. And it really made a huge difference in how yeah. the recording sounded. Yeah, I bet. Um, and, you know, I started doing more um, freelance work around various studios. Eric Kilburn at that point had uh, uh, launched Wellsprings Down, I think, in Concord. Mm -hmm. um, so I did some work there. I worked at Newbury Sound during recordings uh, when it was alive on, that uh, was on North Beacon, I think. Mm -hmm. If Ken hears this, he's going to kill me for not remembering. <laughs> um, uh, I, you know, I can't even remember. I was trying to remember all the yeah. studios where I worked. There right. was a place called Hot Tracks oh, wow. that was, uh, I think, in Brighton. That was a Michael Blackmore room. Okay. But, you know, so many places came and went so quickly yeah. that uh, it's, it's, a, it's a hard business being yeah. in a recording studio. Yeah. And, you know, the joke always was, how do you make a small fortune out of, out of, uh, you know, in, in the recording industry, yeah. you start with a large fortune, <laughs> right? you know, because yeah. it's, it's, it's a labor of love. It's right. really not something yeah, unless you really know what you're doing right. and you've got the right client and you're in the right yeah, place. Of course. Yeah. It's, it's really a struggle. Every yeah. day is a struggle. So, you know, anybody who's hearing this, if you're ever given a recording studio a hard time about how much money they're charging, right. you know, shut the fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they deserve every penny yeah. they're getting. Um, so um, uh, doing freelance recordings was, was good, but it wasn't that steady. Right. Um, and so I was always looking for fill-in work. Uh, and uh, because I could do wiring... And you see, I'm sitting in a lotus position here in this chair. Um, I could get into crazy positions and sit there for a long period yeah. of time back then. Mm -hmm. I started doing contract wiring work oh, for, wow. for, for a company nearby. Mm -hmm. And um, let's see, in 19, two thing, a couple of things happened around 1990. Um, I got asked uh, to do a month-long lockout at Bay Farm Sound Studio. Mm -hmm. And it was with a band uh, then called The Story. Yeah. And uh, so I, w I worked on that. Bef leading up to that, I had done some contract work at um, here in Lowell at, uh, at UMass. Okay. And they were rewiring one of the studios in UMass, the 24-track mm -hmm. studio. And uh, I was in the backs of those racks in crazy positions yeah. <laughs> for a yeah. couple of weeks. Yeah. And uh, I, the day we opened was one of those things where uh, whenever you're finishing the last touches on, on getting a recording studio up and running, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. It's always down to the crunch time. Yeah, of course. And the last day is usually pretty much a straight through day. Yeah. Um, so I, I remember going home, showering sometime in the morning and then coming back. And I hadn't slept in yeah. probably 30 hours. Right. And I came back because they were having a reception to open the studio. Right. And um, I might have even been that day, Will Moylan, who was the uh, chairman of the, of the SRT program here at UMass, asked me if I had ever thought about teaching. Yeah. And um, he said, well, not really, but I've, <laughs> I'd be willing right. to entertain the idea. And, yeah. you know, so we, we talked about it. Mm -hmm. And as I said, I was, I was always looking to try and fit things in to kind of um, 
when you're only doing one thing, if there's a quiet period, you don't have anything else to fill yeah, in. Right. So I thought, you know, if I have two or three things that help fill in the holes, mm -hmm. then maybe I can make like a complete career right. out of this and, yeah. and, uh, and, and bring in enough income yeah. that I can survive. Right. Um, so I thought, you know, I'll do this. I'll become an adjunct teacher here. Yeah. And so um, I taught the junior year lab course in the A-Track recording studio. Oh, wow. And so... Um, I'm, you know, I'm still friends with a lot of my students. Right. Um, Nick Zampiello, who mm -hmm. uh, at uh, at um, uh, Alliance East. Yeah. He was one of my students. Oh, wow. um, Adam Ayan, who uh, is up at, um, works for Bob Ludwig up mm -hmm. at Gateway. Oh, wow. Grammy okay. award winning guy. I yeah. mean, I I have no, resp I take no <laughs> right, responsibility right. or yeah, credit yeah, yeah. for anything these guys have done. Um <laughs> Mark Donahue, who is uh, in JP at, uh, I'm not going to remember the name of the place, but he's won Grammys for his classical recordings. Right. You know, I've worked with, you know, taught these kids yeah, who awesome. went on to do some amazing, <clears throat> amazing things in nice. the program. Um, so I was there part-time uh, for, I'd say, six or eight years teaching there. Yeah. Um, I went through that uh, month-long recording project with the story. Right. And then started teaching. Uh and then at some point along there, um, there was another contract thing that came up of doing some wiring for studios at WHDH. Oh, wow. And it was for back then it was a radio station. It was uh, 850 WHDH. Right. It had got it was bought by Channel 7. Right. Who was looking to change their uh, uh, image a little bit. Mm -hmm. So they they bought WHDH, oh, okay. took on the call letters. Yeah. And uh, I was there. Uh, doing wiring in a broadcast environment for a right. long time. Huh. Um, so when I finished, we finished that up, the chief engineer there wanted to hire me. Mm -hmm. So there were uh, probably about six or eight years where in the, in the 90s where I was teaching a couple of days a week and I was doing broadcast engineering for a couple of days a week mm -hmm. and I was doing recordings a couple of days a week. Right. And um, by that time I was really fully independent as an engineer. Yeah. Um, so I had a project. I remember, uh, this was probably after my daughter was born. She was born in 1993. Um, she might've been maybe one or one and a half. And I had a project with a band called Knots and Crosses oh, yeah. up in Maine. Yeah. Um, like a folk. Yeah, yeah, they were yeah. Uh, like Richard Thompson yeah. is probably their biggest influence, I okay. would say. Yeah. Uh, but, but uh uh, they really covered a lot of ground, really yeah. wonderful musicians, great mm -hmm. singing, songwriting. Yeah. Um, so I would go up to Maine. Uh, we did the uh, basic tracks in of, a, of an album in uh, the State Theater up in Portland. Oh, wow. And then we were doing uh, overdubs in, you know, on Peaks Island in, yeah. in their little cottage. Oh, wow. So I would go up there for three or four days. Yeah. And then I was also working on a project down in New York City Um as a freelance engineer, and I, I've been trying to remember the name of the band, and I just yeah. cannot remember the name of the band. Hmm. Um, but we went around from studio to studio. We did uh, work at Axis. We did work at Sorcerer Sound. Oh, wow. Um, we did work at... Um, I'm not going to remember the name of it either. See, this is this is the trouble with <laughs> I, that I have remembering stuff. We'll yeah. talk about it when I get to their time and timeline. Yeah. Um, in terms of, like, <laughs> my memories aren't so good anymore. Um it was Donald Fagan's studio. I remember oh, that. Wow. Is it River Sound? Maybe is Donald maybe. Fagan's was Donald Fagan's studio. Maybe. But uh, we did some idols, work but... uh, um, in Hoboken at um, Henry Hirsch was the guy who 
was the owner there. And it was where Lenny Kravitz did a lot of his work. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, I was going down there for three or four That's days awesome. at a time. Nice. What ended up happening was I would come home from being gone. And, you know, I'm trying to raise a family. Yeah. Just had the one daughter. Mm-hmm. I would come home. She wouldn't make eye contact with me. Yeah. It was heartbreaking oh, to come course. home yeah, yeah. and have your daughter not be able to look yeah. you in the face. Yeah, yeah. Two or three days later, you know, everything would be fine again. Right. I'd teach for a couple of days and I'd do my broadcast engineering stuff and then I'd take off and I'd leave for three or four days and I'd come back and it repeated. And probably like the fifth or sixth time this happened, you know, my, uh, my then wife and I had a conversation like, I, I don't think I can do this anymore. Right. I don't want to raise my daughter, you you know, and, and have be a stranger to her. Yeah, of course. You know, I, I can't do this. Yeah. Yeah. And so I really made a conscious decision to, um, to trim back how much uh, freelance travel work I was doing. Right. You know, I yeah. still want to do recordings locally. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, the conversations I was having in New York City as an engineer were really positive. Yeah. You know, I right. was, the, the sessions we did at Axis, I was, uh, we were doing basic sessions. Mm-hmm. And I remember setting up a full drum kit in the little tiny studio room they had. Right. And the assistants were all wide-eyed. They had never seen an entire drum kit set up with mics all over it before yeah. <laughs> and someone actually getting a full drum kit sound. Right. I couldn't imagine that in yeah. New York city, right. major studio and these know, the right? kids who, who were assisting and helping me had never seen yeah. a full drum kit set up. Huh. So, you know, it was, it was interesting to, to go down there and work in these places. And, right. And, uh, uh, as a work environment, it was wonderful, right. but it was exhausting. Yeah. Totally exhausting. Yeah, Cause you know, you just, Wake up in the morning, go to the studio yeah. until you can't see or hear anymore. You right. just like you get blind. You're so tired. Yeah. Go home, sleep. Yeah. And turn over the next day. Right. So I definitely remember driving home from, especially from New York City. Yeah. Um, you know, two thirty, three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Having all the windows open. Yeah. And singing at the top of my lungs <laughs> to keep myself awake, yeah. pouring water over my head in the driver's seat, <laughs> oh, you know, yeah, yeah. Try, and just like stay, trying to stay it's awake. It's a long drive. <laughs> and sometimes just like pulling off and just take, okay, I'm going to nap for half an yeah. hour. And, yeah. um, you know, so um, in the late 90s, I, I stopped doing so much recordings. Yeah. And um, I started doing more technical work. Okay. And uh, I had a contact through teaching here at UMass. Uh, small company locally, um, ended up not, didn't end up well. So I'm not going to talk about right. you know, yeah, the company right. itself, yeah, but yeah. it was a small company. Um, and I learned a lot, brought some things there, but I also learned a lot while I was there. Repair work, how to go about doing repair work, mm-hmm. um, studying designs and, and how to do modifications and, and look at a design of a piece of equipment, yeah. something simple like a URI compressor or uh, even the monitor section of a console, mixed yeah. bus of a console, and what would you do to make it better? Right. You know, looking at the compromises that the designers had to do yeah. to, to, to sell the thing right, right. and get it out the door at a reasonable cost, what improvements could you make to make yeah. it sound better right. that would be worthwhile to do? Um, and that's also where I learned to fix tape machines. Yeah. Um, you know, because of and we were talking about this before the kind of mechanical aptitude that I figured out I had in high school. And, you know, I was fixing everybody's car in high school, you know, because of that. Um, I, I really picked up fixing tape machines and 
somewhere along in the 90s, uh, Tascam and Alesis both came out with, uh, with a D88. It mm-hmm. was the Hi8 based, you know, eight track tape machine. Yep. And Alesis came out with the ADAT, which was okay. the SVHS eight track. Right. And they were totally modular. You know, you can string these things together and yeah. build as big a, big a system as you want. Hmm. Um, so I trained at both Alesis and, and Tascam. Yeah. And for a long time, I was the, the guy here in the Boston area for doing warranty work and doing oh, repairs. Wow. Um, so if, you know, in the late 90s and early 2000s, if you had an ADAT machine and a D88 yeah. and it got serviced, it was probably me who oh, worked wow. on them. I think there was one other guy, uh, Dave Greenberg, I think, was also here in town working on them at Bitco. Um, but there was more work than the two of us could handle. Yeah. You know, and, and I, I did a good job of working on them so that I had... Um, one of the big issues with them was uh, trying to maintain stability because you're running a recording studio, you know, you can't have a client show up and then your tape machines right. they don't work. Yeah. So I got customers on studio owners on kind of like a service plan. So every three months you bring them in. Yeah. I'll set up a time, I'll set up a day and I'll turn them around in four hours for you and right. get them back out the door for you. Yeah. And so, you know, by doing a regular routine cleaning and mm-hmm. alignment and maintenance, replacement of rubber parts and stuff like that, mm-hmm. um, I really had a good client base of, of, of yeah. studios that, that really I kept running. Nice. Um, so that place didn't work out that well. Um, and I jumped to another small, uh, place here and that was probably in uh it's like in right in 2001 i because I, I remember i gave my notice at the first one the day of the patriots super bowl when oh, they oh, yeah. the first you know yeah the first yeah, the first yeah. one they won in 2001 yeah, yeah. i think it was right um and uh so it was probably that or maybe it was 2002 crap i right. don't remember the exact dates um but i remember changing that was the day i gave notice because i had to finish on a Sunday, I had to finish right. talking to him and then and then get uh, get home so I could watch the Super Bowl. Um, right. He was notoriously late for everything. That oh, day. right. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so uh, at the second place, you know, and I'd really learned a lot about aligning tape machines and maintaining the mechan- mechanism and uh, not just the playback calibration, but what really determines how the thing's going to sound, the record calibration, right. setting the bias and all the equalization adjustments that you can do right. in, in a tape machine. And um, so when I went to the, the, the kind of second local company that did uh, uh, repairs and they did studio installs and sold little packages and stuff, um, I brought a lot to the table with them. Um, and we, we worked on not just having me do a lot of the repairs, but uh, I really developed like an upgrade and, um, and uh, enhancement, we used to right. call it, mm-hmm. uh, uh, business. Yeah. And so I developed a series of circuit boards that, um, you know, if you had a Trident uh, a 70 series mm-hmm. and you wanted to have a balanced output stage, mm-hmm. I had a little card. Oh, that right. I had designed and laid out myself. Yeah. And then, you know, we would stuff the components in it, screw it into the back and run wires from the console right. to my card and from my card to the out, to the connector on the back panel. And, huh. and so uh, that's really where I started doing uh, a lot of upgrades to equipment. Right. Um, while I was there, a couple of guys uh, on the team, Dave Thibodeau and uh, Brandon McHale, Dave Thibodeau is still here in the Boston area, um, he works a lot with Jeff Daking, mm-hmm. and uh, he also does some of the SSL repairs around the area, I think, still. Mm-hmm. Um, we started developing a product, and it was a, um, 
uh, Neve based of their uh, the 1080 series. Mm -hmm. So it was a Neve mic preamp that was <laughs> controlled by MIDI. Mm -hmm. So our goal was to develop a piece of equipment that, to Pro Tools, looked like one of the, the DigiDesign pre's. Right. So you could actually control our box huh. from within Pro Tools, flipping phase and oh, wow. pan and power switches and gain up and down switches, right. or you could go to the front panel of our box right. and do it. But the circuitry inside um, was all vintage Neve. Mm -hmm. uh, I went to um, uh, Carnhill who makes trans made transformers. They probably still do for yeah. Neve. And I had them make me uh, mic input transformers and uh, line output transformers, oh, wow. the same transformers. Huh. Um, you know, I took uh, a Neve 1084 and pretty much took it apart and analyzed the circuit and boiled it down to the basics of the mic preamp and then laid out the whole thing right. controlled by, uh, they were analog switches controlled by, um, you know, by, by logic. Right. And so the whole thing was essentially was technically an analog circuit controlled right. by digital. Hmm. And, uh, you know, there were some issues with it, but it really sounded pretty great. Yeah. Uh, we built about eight of them yeah. <laughs> You know, before it was clear that it right. was just wasn't going to make it yeah, yeah. financially. Right. Um, but I think there are probably still some of them out there working. Yeah. Um, so with, th with this kind of stuff that you, you just, this was all just experience from working with all of this stuff over years, and, and yeah, yep. where did that drive you think come from? With I mean, you talked about early on, you you were able to fix a car within in, in two months and rebuild an engine. Yeah, I don't. It's a good question. I, I mean, I taught myself electronics. Yeah, you know, um, I didn't. We had a, a basic theory of electronic electricity class yeah. in college, mm -hmm. but because I was doing mechanical engineering, we didn't right. really talk about. Uh, the guts and uh, yeah, the, exactly, and especially at at a place like Brown, it was very theoretical. Right, um, I didn't do any hands-on electric electricity stuff at all. Right, so um, you know, I had a pretty big library of books that I bought and read and went yeah. through about op-amp circuit design, mm -hmm. and you know, I did some work with tubes, um, yeah. but really, I focused on solid state as yeah. far as doing design work mm -hmm. and. Um, uh, I bought a, uh, a lot of magazines, hobbyist magazines about doing performance upgrades to things. And, um, you know, a lot of the stuff was based in tubes uh, mm -hmm. and, 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 uh, and class A circuit design. Right. Um, and some of it was, was uh, about op amps. Mm -hmm. uh, Walt Young was, uh, was a very famous um, circuit designer and, you know, I, I bought a couple of his books and you'd look at his uh, optimal circuit designs against what a company had done in their equipment. Right. And you see these glaring differences. And so, you know, you do one channel's worth of changes. Right. And listen and do some distortion and noise measurements and see right. you can make some dramatic improvements <laughs> in this stuff. Right. And I think... Um, I was excited to improve the quality of recordings, improve my own equipment that I yeah, owned, yeah. and also try and make you know customers happy and earn some money by yeah. doing it. Right. Um, so, uh, I guess I'm I'm a person that when I get excited about something like that, I just dive completely dive into, into it. it. Yeah. And so you know, I was when I was in the studio, I was reading right. electronics books. Yeah. <laughs> no. Now, were you because uh, you still have that camera? The, 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 your dad got you in 1950. Yeah. 
we we were still doing photography throughout all this stuff. Is no, a, a I really didn't or... have any time to do that. Um, it probably was. Uh, let's see. So in in two thousand six, yeah, uh, I'd had enough of uh, the second small company that I worked for right. here doing repairs. Right, and um, it was probably in April or May. I gave my notice there. Right, and uh, I had met some pretty you know good clients working right. there. Yeah. Um, and I had an agreement with, uh, with that company that I wouldn't poach clients. Right. Yeah. After um, you know, uh, I did reach out and let them know I was no longer right. with that company. Yeah. And if they chose to call me, that was fine. Yeah. But there were a couple of clients in particular that I, I, out of respect for that company, I said, right. you know what? I'm just not going to call yeah, them. Yeah. Um, so I spent the summer, Working for myself, and this was in yeah, 2006, working for myself, and I was doing 60 and 70 hour weeks oh, working yeah. for myself. There were a lot of people that I hadn't spoken with in five or six years right. that when I reached out to them and said, I'm on my own again, they said, yeah. I am so glad you're not working there anymore because I couldn't call you because <laughs> right. I didn't like the guy who owns it. Right. And, and you know, yeah, it, yeah, it's, it's fine. Yeah. And so I had a summer's worth of like... I was just flat out doing yeah. repairs nice. um, at my, at my house. I was doing service work in, in studios. Right. I was going everywhere, Yeah, but I could see already that it was uh, a roller coaster. Yeah. And um, I really wanted stability. Yeah. Uh, so I started looking around. Uh, I had a headhunter call me about um, a job at analog devices mm-hmm. um, as an applications engineer. Okay. And I didn't know a lot about what that entailed, right. uh, but I did look into what, you know what it was what it was and it yeah. was a the digital audio group okay and i knew very little about digital yeah. audio i was an analog guy yeah um but i had good soldering skills yeah. you know at that point uh having taken so many uh uh d88s and uh, adat machines apart i was able to do surface mount you know replacement of components especially right. uh these big flat pack ics mm-hmm. You know that most people needed to use uh, fancy equipment with. Yeah, I got good enough that I could just take them off with a simple heat gun oh, right. and swap parts. Yeah. Um, so I had a couple of interviews at Analog Devices before they decided they were going to take a chance on me because I I didn't have my EE <laughs> right. and uh, I didn't have a lot of experience in that specific field. Right. Um, but uh, I started working there in the fall of 2006. And like everything else, you know, that I've done, I focused really hard on learning right. and picking stuff up. Yeah. And having come from the music industry, especially the studio industry, where you just can't ever sit down. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, you'd work a 12-hour day yeah. and take maybe two breaks, half-hour right. breaks, yeah. and you were just flat out. Yeah. And so, you know, I went into an eight-hour day and I was working like I usually did. Right. And my boss was like, you know, you don't really have to work at that pace if you don't want. <laughs> right. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. I was like, you know, this is just how I am <laughs> uh, because of working in the yeah. studios for so long. Yeah. Um, so that was a good kind of way for me to take a step back and, and uh, work in a corporate environment and, and see something totally different. Right. Not worry about money coming in and a regular paycheck. Yeah, yeah. I had suddenly I had proper benefits. Yeah. 
and uh, you know, nice, vacation it? time is, of course, you know, yeah. it's like, wow, revelation, <laughs> you know, I've got, I've got a family and we yeah. need to go away someplace and I can actually right. do that. Yeah. Um, but I was still doing recording studio stuff on the side. Yeah. And um, around, uh, I, you know, I would say 2011, I, when I took my daughter to college, mm-hmm. I was pretty exhausted because I yeah. was doing uh, uh, schematics, circuit board layout during the day at work. And mm-hmm. I was also doing a lot of lab work. I was swapping parts and, right. and running tests and doing technical stuff at work. Mm-hmm. And I'd come home and I had... Uh, equipment piled up on my desk at home. (laughs) So I was kind of like seeing stars of uh, seeing soldering irons in my sleep. And, you know, um, I needed, I needed to really think about changing what I was doing. Right. Uh, I moved here to Lowell. Mm -hmm. Um, In 2012, I met Margarita, but I was still doing, uh, I had a couple of big clients I was taking care of. Yeah. Um, I had uh, in New York City. I had um, through uh, through contacts and and because of my own uh, kind of technical abilities, uh, I landed Alicia Key Studios as oh, basically wow. my that was one of my one of my clients. Yeah. So I would go down once a month, and I did the transition from um, Oven Studios that was uh, on Long Island to their place right in downtown Manhattan. Oh, wow. And uh, you know, I I. I there were many, many years where I just went down there once a month yeah. and I would, you know, do a long day. I would drive right. down in the morning on a Saturday yeah. and I would do a long day of, of tech work and, yeah. and just maintenance and stuff. Most everything at, at some point was pretty straightforward because I went there regularly. Right. So it was, uh, there were some RF issues I had to kind of solve in some of the microphones they had. Right. Um, and I had, um, because of Paul Caruso, who I spoke about earlier, he was uh, very good friends with Joe Perry. Oh, right. And uh, so I did some work at Joe Perry's studio in his house. Yeah. Um, but at some point, um, I was involved with an installation of a studio in Aerosmith's um, management company in uh, in Hanover. Okay. And uh, it was, what year was it? Probably 2012 or 13. Mm-hmm. Uh, they started ramping up to do a record and uh, Paul called me and said, uh, we've got Jack Douglas coming in next month and we want to get the analog tape machines up and running and there are a lot of bugs in the studio and you're the guy we want to have come work on. Oh, wow. So there were probably a month and a half or two months where I was at work during the day yeah. in Wilmington right. and I drove to Hanover <laughs> and I would, you know, at rush hour right. yeah, and yeah. I would spend four or five, six hours in Hanover Oh wow! and, and then I would drive home and pass out. <laughs> so they were, they were recording analog. At, yeah. Wow. Uh, it was, um, what they were doing actually was, uh, it was, uh, I met a guy named Chris Estes who has a company crap what is the name of the company the equipment that he developed was called clasp okay and it was a pro tools interface that um allowed the audio live while they're tracking to go through the pro tools box no how was the signal path it definitely went around a monitoring system inside the clasp box ended up on the analog tape machine record on the record head 
and immediately went from the playhead directly into Pro Tools. Oh, wow. So it was essentially a live bounce right. that was in it. And it's, it, it's invisible in the recording right. process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, the Clasp software interfaced with Pro Tools would even, you know, it started, if it knew it was getting close to the end of the, of the reel, right. it would have a flag for oh, the engineer wow. to say, you know, you probably need to take a break yeah, while yeah. we rewind. Huh. Um, so I was in charge of um, making sure the tape machines were acting well, but also any other little signal issues that were showing up around the studio, yeah. whether it was uh, some of the headphone system issues or right. we had, uh, we had developed uh, a console. It was a Frankenstein console. Yeah. Uh, it was based around Neve console. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was a, no crap. See, it's been so long. It had a, it was mostly focus, right? But it had an API center section and it had a series of Neve. Um, they were the later series of, uh, of, uh, of Neve mic pre's, mm-hmm. the whole mic module, EQ module. Right. And, uh, you know, the team of me and Dave Thibodeau and Brandon McHale essentially put this whole thing together as a Frankenstein console. Huh. And there were a lot of issues that were, would crop up during right. sessions. So yeah. you had to kind of know where to bang on the yeah, thing yeah. to get it working. Um, and then in, uh, so I, you know, I was really doing so much tech work. I worked at Mad Oak. Mm-hmm. I worked at, um, you know, doing freelance work. Uh, notable productions in Watertown, Dan Cantor. He's a mm-hmm. great, great friend of mine for, oh, for right. years and years. Um, you know, I did a lot of tech work. I've, I've rewired his studio a couple of times. Um, I mean, I can't think of all the countless studios right. around town yeah, that I've done freelance work for. Yeah. Um, in 2014 um, was the big turning point. Yeah. Uh, when I didn't have tech work to do, I would bicycle to work. Okay. And um, on June 11th, 2014, mm-hmm. I was bicycling to work in the morning Came in uh, the city. In- it was it was actually right near Wilmington, okay. where I used to work. Okay. Uh, and uh, I had an interaction with a school bus. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> and you know, some people who are listening to this know the story, but right. um, uh, I was uh, playing kind of leapfrog with uh, with the school bus. What time is it? We've been going for a while now. Yeah, yeah, no, um, it's fine. I was yeah. playing leapfrog with the school bus. She would put her stop flags out, and I would stop. Right. you know, behind her yeah. and she'd put her flags in and because I was a bike, I could, I could get going quicker and I right. would pull up next to her and then, yeah. you know, she would get away from me. And at some point I was next to her and she took a spontaneous right turn uh-huh. that I wasn't expecting and took me with her around the curb mm-hmm. and, uh, I fell and, uh, she literally ran me over. Right. Um, and so it, uh, it crushed my pelvis and, uh, tore up my insides and, um, they put me on a helicopter mm-hmm. uh, and took me down to Brigham Women's and um, pieced me back together again. Yeah. And so I was out of commission for uh, about six months. Mm-hmm. And of course, stopped doing everything. Right. Uh, tech work, you know, everything. I yeah. was really home right. here. I was in the hospital for about a month mm-hmm. and uh, and was home recuperating for, for five more months. Mm-hmm. And then in uh, January of uh, 2015, after various reconstruction surgeries, I tried to go back to work. Right. And um, I would say uh, back in 2010 or 11, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I'd, I'd started shooting photos and doing fine art photography. Uh, it's probably around the time I started um, at Analog Devices. Okay. 
Um, one of my friends at work was taking a course in black and white photography. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, my daughter was growing up and I had done a bunch of photos of her with a digital camera. And, you know, it, it didn't really excite me, but it right. was, you know, a record of her growing up. Yeah, of course. And um, I had done some film photos of her using the Icaflex. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it was, it was random kind of thing here right. and there. But when I saw the uh, black and white photos of a friend of mine at Analog, something clicked with me. And I yeah. thought, that's right. That's the look that I really <laughs> like. Right. And it was probably within a week or two, I got out the Icaflex mm-hmm. and I bought a roll of black and white film. At that point, I was living in Newton, right near Newtonville camera. Okay, yeah. And when I would bicycle to work, I rode right past Newtonville camera. Yeah. So, you know, I would shoot a roll of film in the Icaflex and I would drop it off a Newtonville camera on the yeah. way to, you know, into work. I just mm-hmm. stick it in the, in the, in the slot, in the right. mail slot. Yeah. And then on the way home, they would still be open and I'd pick up, you know, pick up the film and yeah. they would have scans for me. Nice. And, um, it really sparked, uh, something in me creatively. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I'd been doing, uh, technical work so much and you know there's some creativity in doing circuit design and trying to figure out well how can I make a console better or what can right. I do to this compressor to make it sound and react better but there's something about that creative thing where you don't right. have anybody telling you what to yeah, do yeah of course and um, I remember doing projects I started investing in cameras and, yeah. and, and getting some film cameras I bought a Holga which is uh a plastic medium format film camera. Okay. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's like a cheapo, you know, a piece of junk camera, right. plastic lens. Mm-hmm. I would put a roll of film in that camera and wear it around my neck while I was riding to work. Okay. And, um, I wouldn't hold it up to my face and, and, you know, look through a viewfinder or anything, right. of course, cause I'm riding, yeah. but I would kind of point it at things mm-hmm. and, and release the shutter. Okay. And, uh, Sometimes I would have it in um, uh, timed mode, and mm-hmm. I forget what the shutter speed is, like a 60th or 125th of a second. It's right. like a spring-loaded yeah. thing, you know, so right. there's nothing exact about yeah, it. Yeah. And so I might do four and five shutter releases on the mm-hmm. same piece, on the same frame. Yeah. Or sometimes I'd put it in bulb mode where I could just hold it open as long as right. I wanted to. Yeah. And um, most every roll of film I had processed had something really interesting yeah. on it. Um, Somewhere along in there, I bought uh, a tank mm-hmm. and started doing chemicals and oh, started yeah. processing my own film. Mm-hmm. And then I bought a film scanner. Right. You can see them behind me sitting here. I've got a couple of them. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I started scanning my own film yeah. and really enjoying the process of doing something creative. Mm. Um, and a couple of friends of mine said, you really should think about you know, putting this in a gallery or in a show or, you know, I was in Newton and the Newton art association was really open to anybody Mm -hmm. and, uh, who, who wanted to, to, uh, to present and, and hang artwork. So I, you know, I started doing artwork there. Um, and a friend of mine, uh, Pete Weiss, who owns Verdant up in Vermont, um, he was, uh, playing a show with, uh, uh, the band that he's in. Um, yeah, the Weistronauts, exactly. Right. Yeah. And it was uh, at a club down in Canton, I think. Mm-hmm. And I, at that point, I had a big medium format camera, studio, uh, film, uh, studio camera. Yeah. And I took a couple of rolls of film 
And I went down and I shot uh, that show, mm-hmm. came home, processed the film, scanned it. And I think at that point, Facebook was happening. And so yeah. I you know, posted these things on Facebook. Right. And they came out pretty well. Yeah. Um, and I think one of those shots ended up inside as the inside cover for, uh, for one of the Weisternauts records. Oh, uh-huh. nice. If there's a black and white you know, live right. shot of them, the whole band, that's, that's, that's yours, my yeah. photo. Okay. Um, it really sparked, wow, I can yeah. take the music business that I've been in for this, so many years right. and photography that I've loved since I was 16 and I can put these two things together. Yeah. And, um, I would go to a show with, uh, with a couple of rolls of film and shoot some photos. And, uh, you know, a couple of friends asked me if I would show up and shoot photos and, you know, it, it kind of snowballed. Right. Um, it's expensive shooting film. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It gets expensive fast shooting film and, and, uh, and processing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started, uh, using digital cameras, but mm-hmm. I really wasn't very happy with them. Right. Um, and I would say the first camera that I was really happy with, uh, was about f- maybe four or five years ago. Uh, when I, when I really wanted to get into a nice, uh, digital camera, I went to Newtonville camera and I, I talked about what I wanted to do. Yeah. I wanted to buy a nice, you know, DSLR. Mm-hmm. What should I get? Right. And uh, he put a couple of camera bodies on the counter in front of me. He put a Nikon in front of me and he put a Canon in front of me. Yeah. And I never really heard of Sony doing right. cameras, but he put a Sony camera in front of me. Yeah. He said, close your eyes and pick up each of these three cameras and tell me which one you like best. Yeah. And I picked each of the three bodies up and the Sony felt right in my hand. Oh, yeah. And I said, you know, so this is the one I should get. He said, well, you know, you're going to be holding on to this camera for hours. Right. And if it's not comfortable in your hand... Yeah. You're not going to you're not going to be happy. Yeah, of course. They're all very similar to each other in right. terms of specs and features. Mm-hmm. So I'd recommend you get the Sony. Yeah. And um so I bought the Sony uh was um was their 100 model. Um and soon after uh, Zeiss actually started coming out with lenses for this uh, for this for, uh, for this camera the Alpha 100 mm-hmm. was the alpha mount. Okay. And it turns out it actually was the same uh, autofocus mount as the last of the Minolta and Maxim cameras, the pro cameras, 35 millimeter cameras right. that were out. Um, so I ended up buying a nice Maxim 7 mm-hmm. uh, film camera right. body. And uh, I had the, the Sony uh, A100. And then, you know, gradually I, I um, upgraded cameras. But I was never really happy shooting live with any cameras until I bought... Um, the A99. Yeah. And that was a huge landmark for Sony coming out mm-hmm. with that camera. Yeah. The noise was so much more under control. I could run the ISO up mm-hmm. at a much higher level. Okay. And and get uh, really good results. For, li- for live music. For, yeah. yeah, shooting live work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, since then, I've wanted to uh, pare down the weight. Right. Um, and uh, a few years ago, they came out with the A7R series. Mm-hmm. And so I, I've, I've uh, essentially sold off my... I had two different A99 bodies yeah. and a whole series of Zeiss lenses <laughs> for, the, for, the, uh, for the Sony series. And I've bought um, an A7R mm-hmm. and uh, an adapter mount right. and a few Leica lenses. Mm-hmm. And they're they're tiny, yeah. But they're some of the best lenses in the world, right? 
And so uh, the Summilux series of lenses, they go down to F1.4, so they're, they're wide open as anything. Mm-hmm. Um, they look nice and sharp all the way out to the corners. Right. They're small, they're light. Um, so I don't have uh, a 15 pound bag hanging right. on my shoulder all night. I've <laughs> yeah, got maybe like an eight or a nine pound bag yeah, hanging yeah. on my shoulder all night. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's a, it's an investment in lenses and, yeah. and, and a camera body, but because I, I could sell that whole other system, it basically, you know, right. was a pretty even exchange in yeah. terms of what, and, and, you know, the Sony a7R, it's pretty darn nice. Yeah. You know, even if I'm doing fine art photography, um, I still I, I do still love the process of shooting on film. Yeah. Um, but I don't find that I'm if I'm out and I have my digital, if I've got my A7 with me with with my Leica kit, that I really do like the results I get. Yeah. Yeah. So now I'm I'm happy with both. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you still can't get some of the pinhole cameras that I have. Yeah. You can't get. That's, the there's same. nothing right. in, in, in digital land that's going to touch, yeah, right. you know, a four by five piece of film yeah. processed with chemicals with, right. uh, with pinhole. And it just, it looks like nothing else does. Right. Yeah. You know, I just love that. Nice. And so what do you, with, with photography, do you enjoy the fine art stuff more than the live stuff? Or is, I mean, obviously you approach them differently. You know, I think I, I, not as differently as you might think. Yeah. Um, when I'm shooting live, I'd really try and think about it as a piece of artwork. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I really focus on composition yeah. and, and thinking about um, how am I going to set up a shot that everything looks interesting to me. Right. Um, and, and get people and interactions between people right. that fill the frame and whether it's lighting and with two people in the shot or a group or even one person with their instrument mm-hmm. trying to capture something that really is interesting. Yeah. So I'll get, I'll get something. And it, and I, I think of it as how I did with, when I do street photography, you'll find a spot where you think something interesting might happen. Right. And the composition looks good. Right. And I'll get some framing set up and I'll just have to wait. Right. And, um, when I'm shooting, I don't really ever look at what I'm doing while I'm doing it. Yeah. In other words, when I if if I release a shutter, right, I don't look at what I just shot. Right, right. Because there's all kinds of stuff that's still going on still in front of me. Yeah. So you know, I've got all the preview stuff all turned off. So I yeah. approach it as though I'm shooting oh, right. film. Yeah. So I don't know. Right. You know, if I take a break in the middle of a set because I right. need to sit down and, and rest my legs and go off in the corner and take a break for a song or two, then I might look. Right. But right. if I'm up and I'm and I've got my camera in my hands, yeah. I'm not looking at what I'm right. shooting. I'm looking at the action on the stage. Right. And I think that's one of the things that I that I see um, so many photographers you know, in front of the set, in front of the, uh, in front of the stage, they, they take one or two images and and they'll look at the back of their camera. It's like, you just missed it. You just missed it. it." Um, so it's, uh, it's an interesting, you know, thing approaching it as a, as a film kind of a, from a film background and and trusting my own self that did I get it? Yeah. Well, I don't know, but if I didn't get that exact thing, there's going to be a couple something else coming up that I'm going to grab. Right. Um, so usually my process is I'll, I'll, if the set's about to start, 
most bands will have something exciting in the first half of the first song, right. something interesting, coordinated. Yeah. They all jump right. or they do something together to start the set. Yep. But then I'll take a step back and watch the dynamic of the band itself mm-hmm. and see how do they line up on stage? Where can I go to get an interesting angle? Yeah. And, and try and set myself up in a spot. Right. You know, and, and take some photos right. and then move to a different place. So I'm, right. I'm a person who moves around a lot. Yeah. Um, and that's so I can get different angles, but it's also so I'm not dominating the space right. for the audience. Yeah, I don't yeah. want to be in anybody's way. Yeah, of course. You know. Well, I think and I think that's a testament to your your photographies, the, the live stuff that I've seen and looked at. You feel like you're at the show, and I think that's, a, that's something that's lost. And, and that was one of the questions I had sort of sent you was, you know, in an era where everyone's taken, you know, there's a, a, thousands of pictures from every concert. Yeah. It's, I, I think it's very important for people that are, you know, truly into music and, and art and that kind of thing is to look at your stuff and, and other photographers. Because, I, I take that as high praise. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Well, because yeah. I, I think you, like you just said, you work on it. So, and that's missed because, you know, when I was younger, you looked at those, all those pictures of, you know, live artists in the back of, and there there wasn't 800 angles of that. There was just that one picture of Iggy Pop with the, you know. Right, right. On the, you know, at the... At the well, you know, a lot of it is, uh, I think, there is a composition element to it where you try and find the right place and, and get things lined up the way you want. Yeah. But then there's also a timing element. Mm-hmm. Um, I run the camera completely in manual. Yeah. You know, I'm manual focus yeah. and completely manual exposure. Mm-hmm. I can see the meter in the bottom of my right. frame, yeah. but I don't leave it in aperture mode. Yeah. So when I see something, it might be on the beat yeah. and I need to release the shutter exactly when I want to release oh, yeah. the shutter. Yeah, so I don't wait for autofocus yeah. and I don't wait for the exposure adjustment. Right. It goes you when I says it to yeah. go. So it, there really is no waiting. Yeah. And I and that's I think that's a significant difference, you know. Yeah, yeah. With with some people who, you know, you see because I'll sometimes see the flash of an oh, autofocus yeah. on somebody's yeah. face. Right. And it's like yeah, you know it's, yeah. <laughs> they missed that timing. Right. Yeah, so yeah. you know it it I think that's that's a that's a um, it requires a lot of brain power. And yeah. I, I was at a show, maybe a month ago, and one of my friends said. I don't know how you do it. It's exhausting shooting live. Yeah. And, you know, and we were talking about on the side, she does a lot of studio work and she does beautiful studio work. Jenny Bergman from uh, uh, Secret Bureau of Design. Okay. Secret yeah. Secret Bureau. I, I, I forget the name of her right. place. Um, and and she's like, I, I can shoot studio stuff all day long and, yeah. and I can focus on the image mm-hmm. and I don't think about the technical stuff. But as soon as I start doing live, it's like yeah, I get yeah. overwhelmed. Right. And I'm the, I'm the exact opposite. Yeah. I can have those four or five adjustments and I don't think about adjusting aperture and speed Mm -hmm. and even the ISO sometimes and focus. I I just have them all at my fingertips and I'm just doing it. When after that conversation, I started thinking about it and it took me like half a show to forget about (laughs) it again. Because I was suddenly really conscious of like, you know, when you think about walking, you can't walk. You know, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. Um, and, and, you you shoot a lot of different genres of music, um, and then the the last show I saw you at, well, 
probably this is, you, I met you briefly for a second. Oh, yeah, yeah. So. We shook hands on the yeah. ramp at Middle East, yeah. yeah. <laughs> at the uh, Boston Massacre 2018. Yeah. I did some serious damage to my hearing that night. I didn't, <laughs> have, uh, I didn't have earplugs in. Yeah, and, see, uh, I always carry, if you ever need earplugs yeah. and you shoot me at a show, and this isn't just for you, Christian, yeah, but yeah. for anybody, I always have a, yeah. a little box of brand new earplugs. So if anybody ever needs earplugs, yeah. I have them in because... I can be, I'll be standing in front of a stack for five minutes. Yeah, I was on that side platform, to, you know, 12 inches from that thing. Yep. I ended up putting like a piece of cardboard in there because it was... But when I left the Middle East and started... Walk, like once I got away from like talking and, you know, the, you know, just the sound of the city and was walking through Central to my car, the hiss in my ears... Your ear, the ringing. Was so, yeah. And then I got in the car and I... I <laughs> <laughs> you know, the beep usually goes off in your car, and it was a completely different tone. And I was like, oh, shit. Yeah. I put uh, HRB on. There was some jazz music playing, and it was all distorted. Oh, boy. So I, I was legitimately scared. And the next day, it went away. But, yeah, yeah. But that was... Uh, but anyway, so shooting those kind of shows where there's a lot of people flying over you. and <laughs> That was uh, that was an interesting thing um, that night. Yeah. Because of, uh, because of my injuries, I... I I have to be careful. Yeah, that was that was one of the things I was going to ask. Does but, that ever? You, know, it does. And I yeah. hit the deck once that night. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I fell on my butt. Yeah. But I held my camera up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and my bag is nicely padded, so yeah. you know nothing got damaged. Yeah. Uh, and as soon as I hit the deck, people grabbed me by the shoulders yeah, and the, and the and the arms and and stood me back up again. Yeah. And the guy who was crawling all over us and doing the stage driving came up to me afterwards and, and shook my hand and oh, apologized. Nice. And yeah. he was a real good guy. I've got some great shots of him like about to dive back yeah. into. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I, uh, when I'm shooting, I forget about that stuff if I can and just dive in. Yeah. Um, what I tried to do that night, especially because the mosh was particularly violent yeah, yeah. that night, I got myself up against the stage. Yeah. And it's a steadying thing for me to be up against the stage. Yeah, yep. And it really helped me stabilize my legs. And, yeah, yeah. and at one point, I really felt a push. Mm -hmm. And I felt uncomfortable about the corner of the stage yeah. against my legs. Right. So I just literally sat up on the stage. Yeah, yeah. And I was looking back at the audience. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had the... I looked down at my camera. I got my focus and my all my settings where I wanted them. And I wasn't even really looking at framing i was right. just holding i had a fisheye on at that point right and i was just holding the camera up over the crowd and trying to capture yeah, yeah. and doing timing stuff i could see what was happening but right. i i was hoping i was getting yeah. stuff framed okay because it was a 15 millimeter lens right i knew i was getting a lot of stuff yeah yeah um but that uh that was a wild night yeah yeah the jerry's kid set was when really there was so much <laughs> stage diving stage, di yeah. stage diving going yeah. on um, and then during moving targets, Kenny himself was going out in the yeah, audience. Yeah, yeah, he jumped. And out. Eve was doing that too. Yeah, and um, then yeah, then there was just a million people on stage. The bull of <laughs> you know. At that point, I, I uh, the last set, the security people had laxed a little bit, and so uh, I tiptoed up behind the monitor console. Yeah. And and the dude who was running the monitors, he was fine. He did. Yeah. I wasn't making any noise or right. causing trouble. So yeah, he let course. me stand there for a while. Yeah. And the security person who was kind of next to the console, you know, he and I make eye contact, and he thought right. it was okay. I was there. Yeah. And um, but that was a, that was a crazy night. I still have sets to go through. I yeah. think I haven't touched the um, straw dog set. Okay. Uh, and I've gotten most of Mung chosen mm -hmm. but i'm still going through and, and this is something you touched on earlier yeah. um 
you know, I might come out of a set with a couple of hundred photos. Right. And I try not to shoot so many photos. Right. But there's so much interesting stuff yeah, of for me usually that. Yeah. And I don't shoot in burst. You know, this is all like one and two right. photos at a time. Yeah. Um, I come home and I really try and pare down yeah. and get rid of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then once I've chosen what photos I like, I process them and I crop them. Right. So that it really is every photo has been kind of selected and right. worked on and somewhat. Yeah. Um, you know, if I'm working in black and white, uh, because either the colors are distracting, whether it's the clothing someone's wearing right. or it just it seems more appropriate to yeah. have it in black and white. Right. Um, you know, I, I do play around with, uh, even if it's in black and white, you can still, I use uh, Adobe Lightroom to do my editing. Right. You can still play around underneath with the color balance. Oh yeah. And you can make huge changes in yeah. how a photograph looks. looks by looking, by playing with the color temperature yeah. and with the tint as well. Mm -hmm. um, and then you can even go in and play with individual colors that are, in the color photo oh, wow. and that it, it's similar to putting like a color filter on a black and white, right. black and white film photo. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if you put a red photo, a red filter on a camera yeah. and go out and shoot nature mm -hmm. and you can see the sky, yeah. the sky is really dark. Yeah. It's almost like a black color right. in, in the black and white photo. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so you can go into a, a digital photo that you've, flip the black and white switch and right. still adjust all the colors underneath. Yeah. And so you can make big tonal changes mm -hmm. in the black and white photo. Nice. Um, so I, I think I don't, I don't consciously try and make my work right. stand out or right. different from anybody else's. Mm -hmm. I just do what I see in my head. Yeah. And if it stands out, it stands out. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Mm -hmm. I, I don't, you know, I, I can't really compare my work to other people's because right. then I've totally lost. Yeah, of course. You know what what comes More from irritating. inside me. Yeah, and I and I know it. and when I see them on Facebook, or or just you know on social media, I immediately know it's one of yours before I even see. This. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I can I, tell. I do have the watermark in the corner. Yeah, yeah. You know? yeah I mean, yeah, that too. But yeah, yeah. But like, I can you know, some people use them as their profile photos, which is fine. Right. If you use my profile photo, all I do is that you let me know and you tag me. Yeah, of course. <laughs> you know, that's fine. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of times they get cut off because yeah, people if, uh, you know, our cameras shoot in two to three perspective. Right. Um, and I will all, when I crop, I try and keep things to a classic perspective, whether it's five by seven or four by five or square. So it's, if, if I'm going to do any uh, enlargement later, at least right. the photo itself will line up with a classic, Correct. Yeah. you know, a classic uh, a piece of paper. Yeah. Um, but, you know, most of the time my watermark gets cut off when people right. use them for their profile photos. Yeah, yeah. But I'm totally complimented <laughs> yeah, on that when yeah. people do. It's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're, so you've, You've started putting this photography out there in the world as of how how, how long have you been doing that? Oh, I would say I got a Facebook account probably in 2010 or 11, and yeah. it was probably 2012, mm -hmm. 11 or 12 that I started doing that. Yeah. Um, I've changed how I approach doing that. Yeah. Um, in the last maybe two years, I've really started developing a series of hashtags that I use. Yeah. So I, I use hashtags based on the band, mm -hmm. um, the club. Yeah. If there's a, uh, a booking agent or yeah. a promoter, I usually will, nice. will use hashtag for them. Yeah. I've got them for myself. Yeah. 
Um, you know, here in Lowell, I have a series that just tag Lowell. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one of the local guys here, Eddie Dyer, is, uh, is, is such a great singer-songwriter. Mm-hmm. Um, but he always uh, says, I'm from fucking Lowell. So when I <laughs> when I put his photos up, there's a hashtag, I'm from fucking Lowell. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that I put on his. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, because yeah, yeah. that's his hashtag. Yeah. Um, uh, but I've gone from waiting until I have the entire album edited to put, and putting it up uh, to... Uh, when I come home from a show, I'm usually wired. Yeah, yeah. So I come home, I'll take the memory card out of my camera and the battery out, stick the battery in the charger, yeah. and I'll come to my office and stick the memory card in the computer and start transferring. Yeah. Go grab a snack. Yeah. And then when it's done, uh, I usually will go through, if I've got the energy, I'll go through and pick out one photo from each right. set. Okay. And it might be, if it's good of the whole band, yeah. I'll post one photo from each set of that night. Yeah. And I usually will share myself and share them in the event. Right. And then hopefully in the next couple of days, I'll go through and find maybe six or eight photos yeah. that look just quickly look like they're really strong. Yeah, yeah. Process them, crop them. Right. And then put them up as a small album. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's I've been doing that maybe in the last three, two, three months. Okay. Yeah. And uh, and that's been getting a lot of. It's been getting me a lot of attention. Yeah, yeah. By putting up five and six photos yeah. and sharing them myself, yeah. and then putting that in the event and tagging members of the band, and uh, and so I've got um, I've got a document that's all of the hashtags and oh, band yeah. members yeah. of everybody I've shot nice. since I, I started doing it. It's a big document. Yeah, hashtags are, are. I don't think people realize the importance of them, and I need to to utilize more with my with this podcast because I, I try to hit. You know, everything with, you know. You know, um, I I think people don't use them specifically, but if someone's doing a search for the name of a band. Right. uh, My hashtags will show up. Yeah, yeah. Or if someone searches for that band using the hashtags, all my photos will show up. Um, And I really use Facebook for that because uh, Twitter and Instagram... They aren't really set up for doing multiple photos right, as much. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, now Instagram, you can kind of page to the left yeah. and right and see yeah. a few photos. Um, but I just haven't gotten into the routine of doing that. Yeah. It's it's, uh, it's more difficult. I'm really desktop, well, laptop, but desktop-based yeah, yeah. right, right. in terms of my posting. Yeah. Um, and it was always a rigmarole to try and get my photos stored in a place that I could get to from my phone right. to post them on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. Right, you know, right. so it was like, why should I do five <laughs> steps to post them on Instagram right. when most of my most of the people I, I tag on Facebook download them and yeah, they tag course. them, they put them on Instagram yeah, yeah. for me. So, yeah. um, you know, maybe I'll, I'll work that into my flow at some point. But right yeah. now, that's that's kind of how my flow goes. Nice. Yeah. So to sort of wind down, if if people didn't want to see your stuff. You have a website. I do have a website, but I don't really post much there uh, because it's not as immediate. ColemanRogers.com is is my website, but it's really my Coleman Rogers Photography Facebook page that has... If you want to find an album of any of the bands that I've shot, they're all there. Um, Going back... Five six years yeah. probably. Yeah, there's a ton of stuff. Oh my god, yeah. Yeah. I mean, sometimes if I'm trying to find somebody, it's and I just want to scroll through and find it's right. like, wow, I forgot I did that set. <laughs> um, uh, but most of the time, I'll share them myself. Yeah. And I do share them a lot in like there's a Boston Rock and Roll Photography Facebook page. Oh yeah. Okay. Uh, it's a group that yeah. that I I share into. I always share them on like the clubs 
when I finish a whole album, I'll share them on the club's Facebook page, right. yeah. on the band's Facebook page. Mm-hmm. You know, I tag individuals. So yeah. it, it, it's, uh, they're difficult to miss. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, I definitely. probably drive people crazy, <laughs> <laughs> but that's all right. Hey, no one, yeah, it's, it's no one tells stuff. me to stop, so yeah. that's okay. And then physical uh, prints, you just showed me. Uh, some stuff here and yeah I've done I do some if people want to order prints and yeah. I do have you know for every couple of weeks some will yeah. say hey I'd love to buy a print from from you of that of that band there's, there's yeah. this one shot I really like right. um, you know they can just contact me send yeah. me a, a Facebook message and and, and ask um, there's no real place or store that I have set up right. online right. Yeah. Um, I did that at one point with a, with a square uh, mm-hmm. I did a Squarespace store. Oh yeah, and I publicized it. I thought I publicized it yeah. well, but no one really bought anything from yeah. it. Um, so, and and I do. If someone wants to buy a photo of a band, right? Um, I do give a royalty to the band itself, oh, wow. even if it's a couple bucks. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like it's the band. It's their art you know. too. Yeah. I, I have sold some large ones, like the one I have at the Arts League now of Kenny. Yeah. Um, you know that you saw. It's a, yeah. it's a it's the a Kenny crowd surfing at, yeah. at the Middle East. Right. It's three feet by four feet. Yeah. It's big. It's a nice shot. Um, and I, oh, thanks. And it's yeah. 175 bucks. Yeah. If it sells, you know, I'll give him 10 bucks or yeah. whatever the five percent of that would be. Yeah. You know, as a, as a royalty. Nice. Um, so it, I, you got, I got to pay back people, yeah, you know, yeah, even course. if it's peanuts, it's, yeah. uh, it's the sentiment. Yeah. Well, awesome. I, so, I definitely appreciate you doing this and, uh, you definitely embody passion with, with, you know, starting back with, you know, talking about your, all this technical stuff. So it's, it's great to <laughs> sure. hear that you, you know, if you need to cut uh, a lot of that out, it was, no, 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 it's <laughs> yeah, okay. no, I think it's great. We've gone for a long time, yeah, maybe longer no, than people expected. That's, but, so. that's perfect. That's man. good. I mean, I, I'm happy to, uh, that, you know, people who've only met me maybe in the last three or four years because yeah. of my photography yeah. don't know the history of, of yeah. you know, the, the music that I worked on over yeah. the years. Yeah, I didn't realize. You know, bands that I work with, I, I mentioned Knots and Crosses, yeah. but uh, there was a band called The Great Divide yeah. years ago. They were, okay. That was a really great band. Yeah. Was, uh, Jimmy Worcester and Kevin Connolly were the were the main guys in that band. That okay. was, they were wonderful. Um, I, I, see, I'm blanking. The, the whole... The whole uh, one of the one of the side effects of uh, of the accident that I'm left over with is uh, is a lot of chronic pain that I yeah. have, and I deal with that on a day to day basis. Right, and it's it really does affect my ability to remember stuff. Yeah, yeah. And um, luckily, you know, when I'm shooting photos, I mostly forget about all. Yeah, that. yeah. So, and this, uh, you think the photography has helped heal? Uh yeah. I think um, if if I didn't go out and shoot photos mm-hmm. uh the only time i would leave the house would be to go to the gym and yeah. get the doctor's appointments yeah yeah you know so it gets me out of the house yeah. and and it's it's a it's a social thing where yeah. i get to go see people and yeah. and hang out in an environment even yeah. if it's loud and i can't talk to people yeah, too much course. yeah yeah you know um one of the things that's coming up that i do want to mention um yeah. uh at once somerville yeah uh, once ballroom on september 16th okay. on the uh, it's a sunday yeah there is a, a a street festival going on in oh, front right, of, right. of once, but they're going to be about 20 uh, Boston music photographers oh, nice. displaying work for the day. It's only a one day show. Yeah. Um, so uh, they're going to be some wonderful, wonderful oh, awesome. photos there. So I want to plug that. Yeah. Uh, I've, you know, there's an event on Facebook you can go find. It's called cool. local focus. Yeah. And um, there's been so much response to it that if it, if it goes well that day, we'll probably do other ones nice. with, you know, maybe different photographers yeah, because yeah. there's, there's so many great photographers yeah, there is. in the Boston yeah. area. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't even want to start listing them because <laughs> I will leave somebody out. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Um, 
you know, I was I was honored uh, 2016 to be uh, a Boston Music Award nominee. That's awesome. And it was nice. a really wonderful thing to yeah. get nominated. Um, that was a nice kind of uh, recognition of my work. Nice. And who, so for a lot of these, uh, most of these podcasts are very music and we didn't really even talk about music at all. No, this, not really. Which is fine. <laughs> and, a, and a lot of them. Well, you know, you said I, I do, I shoot, Yeah. I shoot all whole, kinds of music. Yeah, yeah. You know. Who are, who are some of your favorite people just to listen, like in, like that you like, I, when I walked downstairs, I saw you had a lot of Dylan CDs, which, and I'm a big fan, so. Yep. But who are, who are some of your In terms of favorites? listening to music? Yeah, yeah. Ah, oh, my my musical taste is very very broad. Yeah, um, I assumed that. <laughs> yeah, I I think um, a lot of it is rooted in uh, in the mid '80s, mm-hmm. you know, and a little earlier. Yeah. Uh, XTC, oh, King yeah. Crimson, The Clash. Okay. You know some of the some of the classic bands yeah. from then. Yeah. But you know, um, certainly over the years, uh, I I gravitate towards music that. Um, it's passionate like I am and yeah. sincere and yeah. has heart and a message yeah, yeah. that I, that resonates with me. So yeah. whether it's, you know, rage against the machine, right. uh, Nirvana, I'm trying to think of some other non hard edged, um, music yeah. that, uh, that's current that, that I'm, I'm just blanking on, I know. <laughs> on music that I, you know, that I, right. but there are so many great local bands yeah. here. Oh, I know. Right. You know, parlor bells is great yeah. worshiper. Yeah. Um, and again, I'm going to leave guys out. So please, <laughs> it's my memory going that I can't remember everybody. Uh, but even, you know, here in Lowell, this is, this is, uh, an intense music scene here. Yeah. There are so many original bands yeah. here in Lowell that play it, whether it's uncharted or thirsty first or right. warp and weft, which is right downstairs here. Yeah. Um, I, you know, there's so much great music in yeah. the Boston area and Lowell that it's just unbelievable. I know. It's, 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 We're spoiled. Yeah. We really are spoiled here. Yeah. Um, that people complain about the Boston music scene, but you know, you go to other cities <laughs> yeah. that are comparable size and they are not going to have oh, the no. same kind of Any original of the music week. scene. Yeah. And you could see a metal show tonight or you could see a, you know, indie rock show tonight. You could see a, you know, yeah, absolutely. Week here. Yeah. Folk music. And there'll or, be people there. And, yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's crazy. It's so. just crazy. Cool. Well, thanks again, man. You're welcome. It was my pleasure, and I, I appreciate you asking me. Like yeah, I said, it was a big course. compliment for, for, for me, too. Uh, no that problem, you asked me. man. All yes. right. Thanks.